Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID Conversation. My guest today is Dr. Nicholas Hookway, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Tasmania. Nick's research focuses on how morality, identity and giving behaviours are being reshaped by wider social change. He is the author of Everyday Moralities, Doing It Ourselves in an Age of Uncertainty. G'day, Nick. Is it true that you've locked yourself in your car to keep away from your darling children to have this chat? It is, John. Um, I'm tucked away in the car in in the garage here in Tasmania. And I must say, uh, I did give the car a quick little clean. It's not looking that good after a fairly good working over during COVID. It sort of became a, the PE bus with the kids. So, But, yep, I've um, got the little mobile studio in the in the ute. In the youth, goodness. I mean, I, I, I love the fact we have our children and then we do what we can to get away from them. But look, uh, all right, at the beginning of your book, you write, we are in a state of moral decline in the modern West, or so we're told, from anxieties concerning the spread of relationship short-termism and contemporary obsessions with celebrity, cosmetic enhancement and self-image to complaints about cultural permissiveness and millennial narcissism. The world today is often imagined as morally worse than the world we used to inhabit. Westerners are supposedly morally cut adrift as the old moral anchors and certainties become merely choices and we are left to bicker and fumble over what might constitute right or wrong. So Nick, There's this whole school of sociology that says we're morally going to the dogs. In fact, two schools, the cultural pessimists and the communitarians. Tell us about those guys. Yeah, thanks, John. So basically in in this work, I've I've tracked two narratives of, of moral decline that I see as influential both in popular imagine, imaginings, but also in intellectual and scholarly uh, work on moral crisis or loss. So as you said, there's the two dominant camps uh, of decline, of moral decline, the cultural pessimists and, and the communitarians. Uh, so in the, the first group is what I call the cultural pessimists. So this is a bunch of writers predominantly in the 1960s, and they're critiquing um, the rise of narcissism and hedonism in the contemporary West, and they, they see so, this so, largely. So they were, offended, they were offended by the swinging 60s. Exactly. They, they were offended by the, the swinging 60s. Exactly right. So uh, this there's a bunch of theorists like Philip Reef. He wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Daniel Bell wrote a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. And uh, Christopher Lash, which some of us might have heard of, uh, wrote a book called The Culture of, of Narcissism. And the kind of unifying idea is that with the decline of religion and traditional forms of authority, Westerners have become narcissistic, uncaring, as they become absorbed with a culture that says the self is the centre 
of uh, of life uh, and that the kind of emerging therapeutic culture was 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 part of that so that's the kind of the first group our cultural pessimists and then we have the the communitarians and their key insight into understanding moral decline is really that the breakdown of community and an ensuing individualism has undermined a shared or common sense of moral culture and importantly a sense of responsibility towards others i mean do did you have any sympathy for that position well look both perspectives i think tap some some truths and and i think that we can you know the idea that having a strong community life uh a strong sense of connectedness with others and moderating the more dangerous or cancerous effects of individualism is important. And I do share some sympathies with with that critique. Um, but I also, my kind of argument is that what these perspectives do is they ignore the importance that that self can have, um, particularly ideas of um, of emotion, of body, and how they can actually help us articulate and understand a, a moral position. And these critical accounts, they too they too often ignore the role of individual s- sources of authority, and they they're very uh, they. They're too quick to dismiss um, the role that kind of, say, a therapy culture can play in terms of, you know, the world's not just about thou shall nots and the idea that morality relies on these vertical forms of authority. And if we don't have religion or we don't have strong community sources of morality, then it's all kind of just goes to the moral pack. You know, Christopher Lash has this famous quote about how, oh, the problem with the modern West today is, you know, everyone thinks that, you know, the answer is, you know, finding they'll find answers in uh, getting in touch with their feelings or eating healthy food, taking lessons in ballet or belly dancing. So there's this quote that Lash has where he you know, critiques the, this, these not what he sees as narcissistic tendencies, and in in my work, I've tried to argue. Yeah, look, I can see that there is the potential for narcissism, and since the sixties and seventies, you know, arguably our culture has become much more focused on ideas of self development, self growth, um, and the whole kind of psychological framing has become. Uh, more and more important, you know. You go into you, your local bookstore and you wander down, you wander through the shelves, and you'll see, you know, a whole self-help section, right, about how to find yourself or how to put the eye in the individual, or uh, you know, similarly similarly titled books. And it's easy to be dismissive of 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 these sorts of tendencies. Well, I guess I guess if we pull if we pull if we pull back from the self-help book aspect a little bit or, or, and I, and I get the meaning I guess more broadly though I guess the point you're making if, if I'm right is that that old school kind of was really much uh, about things being prescribed you know whether it was from God or a community leader or the community itself and as, as you sort of say there's some pretty negative aspects that can come out of community pressure one of them is you're either in or you're out and so inclusiveness, exclusiveness, etc. As I take it, what you're looking at is the idea that 
morality can be a striving thing, can be a, a thing that's positively sought out and therefore uh, when it is uh, you know, sought out, I guess what you call with an, an honest heart, um, perhaps it, 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 uh, it's going to resonate more deeply because it's, it's, it's been more uh, sincerely sought out, I suppose. That's right. So what, what I'm proposing is that we can have room for a morality that includes the self, that includes the emotions, that includes the body, and that we can try and have actually, actually recognize the moral power of ideas about being true to yourself or being authentic and trying to understand what this means in in the everyday lives of contemporary westerners that that relate to these moral frameworks and that's what I was interested in looking at well you you're certainly not so pessimistic and and you took a pretty clever approach to researching modern uh, do it yourself morality by analyzing blog posts tell us about that what what did they tell you I was like, how do you get people to talk about morality? How how can we understand this in a deeper and more meaningful way? And I thought about blog posts um, as as a way of doing that and looking particularly at how people understand their moral choices, how they write about moral choices. And when I was doing a lot of this work, it was when blogs were a very popular um, form of internet communication. It was kind of just as Facebook and some of the early Web 2.0 platforms were emerging um, where we saw uh, a type of internet communication that wasn't just kind of one way, but actually people that could, a type of media where people could create content. So, Blogs enabled uh, a way into it, a, a way of looking at it, this idea of everyday morality, getting looking at the textures of morality um, through people's um, stories and their diaries. So in a way, I treated them as as diaries. Which is interesting because, uh, you know, the uh, the cultural pe- pessimists and, and the communitarians would both go, aha, Blogs are <laughs> blogs are actually evidence of what we're talking about, the complete self-absorption and, yeah, and so on and exactly. so forth. And, and uh, I guess it's a concept you could say that, oh, here's another person with a blog, spare me. But, of course, it depends on what people are writing and what they're thinking about and what they're actually sharing. And uh, you can uh, turn, that, turn that around and find that, you know, there's a bit of philosophy going on amongst these you know, just everyday people having having a go at actually working themselves out and doing it publicly. What are some of the things you actually found, though? Well, firstly, you're exactly right. What what we what I saw in the blogs was people reflecting upon their everyday lives, reflecting upon their decisions, reflecting upon how to be better people, how to what they could do to help perhaps create. A better society or a, a better world. They were highly reflective. They were highly intellectual, and they were about ordinary life and ordinary relationships. But I think there's something really powerful that we can learn about the makeup and of of our society by by looking at this ordinariness and, and this everydayness. So it was people talking about their work lives, their their intimate lives, stories about people walking down the street and being confronted by a homeless person and trying to work out what to do. 
Um, so there's one particular story I remember of a young a young woman who was who came across an Indigenous person who was homeless on the streets of Melbourne, and they would walk past them every day, and they you know they'd go through the rituals of what what you might call miss meeting. They would avoid eye contact. They wouldn't they wouldn't speak to each other. That they'd be they'd be you know this person blocked them out. And then one day there was a an interaction, a discussion, and it actually led to this friendship and and this young girl really trying to help help this woman. It was just a really powerful story. But there were lots of those sorts of accounts of of moral life about people trying to work out whether they should break up with their partner, what the what the right choice was, whether they should donate to a particular charity, whether they should volunteer more, whether they should become a vegetarian or a vegan. So there's just these, these wonderful accounts of, of, of everyday morality. Um, it took me a lot to find them. I, you know, it was kind of like a, they had a bit of a soap opera quality to them at times. It, it meant that you kept reading, but sometimes it wasn't always about morality. Of course, it might be about, you know, going to Ikea and buying some furniture uh but so you had to sort of find the find the good stuff and uh look i spent way too long that's life isn't it i mean we're not we 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 can't all just have 24 hours a day uh, you know sitting there with a pound of butter in one hand and a i don't know pound of corn in the other going which one will i have there's this but I, i guess the real value was that seeing so much moral striving and searching was going on and that that I suppose I'm, I'm guessing that when people have that opportunity and, and to explore and, and actually get on with it and explore an issue themselves, that the moral conclusions that they come to are going to resonate with themselves a lot more deeply than, say, um, the best read sermon from from the pulpit, I guess. And and that uh, I guess you saw it was very encouraging that people were engaged in these in 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 this kind of exploration of the right and wrong. Do you think right and wrong is still a is still a concept people kind of uh, find important? That, that I've got to do the right thing. To quote that great film by uh, Spike Lee. <laughs> yeah, no, people are actively talk. Well, in in my research, they're they're actively talking about what what the right thing is, what what the wrong thing is. It's it's part of the that their moral moral imagination and one of the things that i also did in the research was i i followed up with many of the bloggers and um we hung out online and we we did um interviews together like we i interviewed them and we talked about what they were writing in in their in their blog so i actually had that opportunity to to flesh out their 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 understandings and their their moral viewpoints but very much this idea of right and wrong is is part of it but i think what i see in the in how these participants how these australians are these contemporary australians are are talking about morality is they're doing it through this lens of of what i call do it yourself morality so they they're still very much about thinking reflecting working through moral questions but it's often done outside of a a religious framework or some other kind of clear source of moral authority the the kind of the the springs of moral life 
I suggest uh, are perhaps more inward and interior uh, than exterior or external. But of course, there were bloggers too uh, that I spoke with that um, were religious and had a, a religious framework. But I still feel like the well, I argue that the they still have a DIY element to them. But look, um, for the idea of do-it-yourself morality to, to thrive, people need a certain measure of freedom, don't they? Freedom of thought, of course. Um, but there's also the question of competing interests and how to reconcile them. I'm thinking here about the situation right now where social distancing is, is a moral obligation. But it's run up against a moral crisis that has also come to a head, and that's the large-scale Black Lives Matter protests and what appears to be a bona fide opportunity to push for change in terms of policing and systematic racial abuse and inequalities. But I guess you'll have people saying they have a moral right to make a lot of noise and get in the face of the cops and all the rest of it, all of which leads me to ask you, can DIY morality be reconciled within an organised structure and within those broader obligations? Yeah, that's a really um, thoughtful uh, and interesting question, John. One of the arguments that I make in, in the book is about the importance of ideals of self-authenticity and more generally values of authenticity. You know, I mentioned it before and we've all heard these ideas about being true to yourself and discover the real you. And I think part of that, there's a real potential for narcissism. But at the same time, I think we need to modify the potential for narcissism with how those ideas of self-discovery or self-fulfillment personal improvement, how they can be linked perhaps to higher ideals or higher principles. So we can have kind of lower forms of authenticity, for example, that perhaps are more like narcissism. But we can also have higher forms. And I think the higher forms is when this idea of being true to yourself or being self-responsible is linked to something bigger, some sort of constitutive tension, if you will, um, some kind of external aspect. So there's always an artistic element to morality, a creative part, being original, a kind of non-conformist part, especially in this kind of culture of authenticity that we're talking That's about. That's a very but interesting th- idea that, 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 that there's an artistic idea, extension to morality, but I guess we sort of constituency, you are so then verging on that that thing of, of community, aren't you? Well, I am. And this is what I'm saying is that I'm not saying that we need to celebrate the self in isolation. We're always connected to others and we only make sense as human beings in our relationships with others and in our concerns for others' suffering and, and flourishing. You know, I guess that thing of moral creation is that obviously – when you've when you've looked at it, you find, of course, many people come to the same place uh, in terms of the things they believe that are that make for a, a better, truer way of being. A commitment to kindness would be and seems to be a start. And in fact, this is something you've explored as an expression of personal morality, but also on where it fits into that into that bigger picture. Uh, in two thousand and sixteen, you and two colleagues published research that used the Australian Survey of Social Attitudes 
to assess the state and shape of contemporary moralities by asking how kind are Australians and how is, how is its expression socially distributed and what are the motivations for kindness. Your findings were on the sunny side, demonstrating that Australians exhibit a strong attachment and commitment to kindness as a moral value that is primarily motivated by what you called interiorised sources of moral authority. Is, is that those interiorised sources, is that what you're talking about when you talk about moral creativity? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the idea that morality is spoken about in a way that it comes from within us rather than something external or outside of us. Um, and I think that I've mentioned, you know, the authenticity stuff a bit, and that captures that that idea of people often talk about this idea that they go with their gut yeah. or they intuit what's right or wrong or they, they, they develop a sense or feeling for what's right and wrong. Now, that's an interiorized source of morality. Of course, those feelings are, are socially bound. Um, our, our feelings about what is right and wrong don't come from you know they have a they have also have a social and external source. So again, it's that that kind of balancing act between the the creative and artistic as, aspects, and then having some kind of external sources or what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls having horizons of significance in which hmm. those those interior ideals operate. And of course, you know, from a psychological point of view, there's the subconscious working away with things that we learn and feel and. There's our self-preservation, which can then, because we're social animals, extend out. So there's that very animalistic basis of extending out to also be protecting of others. It's a very interesting and very complex idea, though. You know, two, two years before that paper was published, your paper was published, I actually interviewed you about some of the early findings. And they were pretty complex and, and even paradoxical. On the one hand, the younger generation, those born since uh, 1986, reported being kinder than older generations, notably to strangers. But they were less likely to think most Australians are kind, and in a separate analysis, only 11% of that younger generation agreed it was important to be kind to neighbours, compared with 58% of boomers. You had some ideas as to what was happening there, and it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting set of findings, I think. Yeah, this has been something that's really fascinated me and, and drives me along in, in a lot of the work that I do is trying to unpack that um, tension that and paradox that we found in that nationally representative survey on, on kindness in Australia where, we, as you said, we found that uh, younger generations report engaging in acts of kindness more often than older older generations but are less likely than older generations to see most Australians as kind. And, and to extend that, we've also found in subsequent work that younger people are less likely to trust Australians. So they're, they're, they're um, less likely than older groups to say that, you know, most Australians can be trusted, for example, or they're also most uh, less likely to think that most Australians, are f uh, Australia is a fair place. So that's really, really interesting. We've been trying to understand why that's going on. One thing you'd said at the time to me was that there was a sort of an awareness, perhaps, perhaps even a hyper-awareness of 
the world not necessarily being in itself a kind place or a safe place. And I suppose there were those tensions too between, you know, the asylum seeker, is it a debate? I mean, I don't know what you'd call it now. It's Mm. just been such a mess. But Mm. there's been a whole lot of messages that young people have grown up with that haven't really probably made them feel that they've been part of a fair place. Uh, in relation to, say, asylum seekers and outsiders. Um, and, and of course, everything that's occurred since 9-11 has probably also fed that uncertainty, not necessarily uh, a fear of um, you know, fundamental is- Islamic people, but just general conflict, maybe. I- I'm not sure. Yeah. Our, our attempts to try and explain this sociologically have kind of gone along the lines of, why young people are feeling wider social transformation acutely in their lives. They have significant exposure to a, what we might say is an until further notice world, a world which seems more brutal, uh, more harsh, where work relationships become more uncertain, become more short term, become less secure that they build a life, you know, as Dan Woodman would say, without the security and predictability that their boomer parents perhaps did. And that helps explain the one part of the paradox that they feel that the world is less kind um, and, and, and is more harsh. But at the same time, why are they reporting... They seem to be more likely to say that they're kind to strangers, that they're, they report acts of kindness at high levels. Now, there's all sorts of possible explanations for that. It might be about opportunity, for example, that they have, they have more time to do it or that they have different understandings of what kindness is. Of course, this is a survey, so people are still, though we give them some leads, they're still interpreting what kindness means. But... Maybe they just want to make the world a better place. Maybe because you one, one thing that's also sat there is the internet, which on the one hand opens up a world of horrors. If you want to go and look at some just things that you can't get out of your mind, go to the internet. Mm. You'll just you'll see terrible things. On the other hand, uh, the well, r- rather stymied Arab Spring came out because people were talking to other and thinking, well, we've had enough. We want to make it. We want to make some change. So maybe. While there seems to be that tension, I mean, I'm just thinking, and obviously this isn't a soci- <laughs> I'm not giving you a sociological um, answer here, but just that idea of those two tensions maybe work together. You know, well, the world isn't necessarily a kind of place, but I'm, I'm going to reach out even if it is perhaps that person who's homeless or even if it is someone that I know who is not feeling that great at the moment. So maybe I'll go and reach, reach out to them and make yourself feel better about the world because you made yourself feel better about yourself. I, I don't know. I like the analysis, John. I, I, that's, that's right. I think that the, the part, part of it is that we know that younger people have higher levels of education for a start and mm. that that is perhaps linked to a commitment to more democratic egalitarian values that they're they kind of as one as one young person said in a focus group that we did we expand and we go outwards he talks and he tells this i remember this young man telling this story about how compared to his parents and his grandparents how his social world was so much so much more diverse and that you know that he'd, Mm. he'd be walking down the streets 
of, of, of Melbourne with, you know, people from a variety of uh, ethnic backgrounds or and that we, we know that younger people tend to be, and whether this is just young people as in it's a generational effect that it'll always be like this or whether it's just young people and you kind of grow up and get old and grumpy and live in the suburbs and become conservative. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not sure whether it's a sort of a life course thing or a generational thing. We sort of think that it might be a generational thing that and that mm. it's linked to these high levels of education, this, grower, uh, this stronger attachment to these values of uh, acceptance and, and, and greater tolerance. And I guess I do come across like a bit of a Pollyanna, but that's, that does give me hope thinking about the future in terms of that generation coming through and with that set of values. You know, I, 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 and this is a long time ago, but, you know, I do remember that you'd, you'd be this very young person. When I say very young person, I'm still maybe late teens, which is still very young for me. And I remember meeting this fellow who's just wandering around. He was bearded. He was a bit older than I was. And he's this nice guy. He's from Seattle. And I, I was very fascinated. I, I was living in the western suburbs of Sydney by then. I took him home. I took him home and I said to my, he's going to stay with us for the night. Like I had made, it was like I'd made this instant friendship with this fellow who wasn't sure where he was going to stay. I can't imagine I'd do that now. And I think there's, <laughs> a, there's that beautiful openness in young people that we, we kind of forget to stop and think about that, 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 that they do have that. And um, that's a great asset, I think, for, for, for young people. So if they think in the world's a pretty shocking place, they've got something in the toolbox and it is, I guess, kindness. I guess I was being kind to that guy 40-something years ago. So Absolutely. You know, Have you not been kind since, John? I look, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying. Look, apparently kindness isn't just a virtue, Nick. It's, it's good for us. Last year you and I had a chat um, about a study from psychologists at Iowa University in an experiment, they found that people improved their mood by simply walking around the neighbourhood and performing a few random acts of kindness and simply wishing well to strangers. They reckon you felt better in just 12 minutes. <laughs> is that your experience? And do you, know, do you think it is a tonic just to do it? Absolutely. I, I do. I think, I, look, I've done a number of radio segments on this and, and often we do talk back. And we get people calling in to share their their stories about being kind, it, whether often about receiving an act of kindness or sort of a random act of kindness. And many of those people you support exactly what the the science tells us that giving acts, generosity does make us feel better. And I'm sure that there's a neurochemical dimension to that, but it. But also at a fundamental sociological level, I think it's about reaffirming our social bonds and emphasizing the importance of of social connection. It, it creates this this yeah, it creates this good feeling within us. And people often talk about the kind of contagious effects of of kindness as well. And look, we see this empirically as well. Um, it's almost like it has a snowballing effect. We know that people mm. who, uh, who who volunteer uh, are more likely to give their their dollars to charity as as well. Um, so that 
there are these, I, I think, these kind of benefits that that come from from acts of kindness. But let's not make it just simply about the self either, about, oh, I'm going to go and be kind because it will make myself feel better. And I don't think people do it in such an instrumental way. Um, no. Sometimes those kind of, you know, 10 ways to be happier in four weeks, uh, <laughs> you know, tend, tend to kind of have that, have that sort of model. But let's, and I think this comes through during COVID-19 and, and our, the way that we've had to change our lives and yeah. it's emphasized our vulnerability, our, our fundamental connection with, with other, others. And I've, I've had people say to me, it's like, oh man, you know, I, I realized just how important it is to be around others, to have a conversation with others. And it's, it sort of helped us remember some core truths about what it means to be human. And I think acts of kindness are, are central to that humanity. Look, we were going to talk about loneliness, but the time has flown. You've got two children that you've got to now go and be kind to. So next time, <laughs> I guess. It's always great talking with you, Nick, and I, I appreciate you hiding in the car for today's podcast, although I think you probably thought, oh, this is, this is pretty nice in here. But thank you, mate. No problems. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's been really, really great to to chat and um yeah i'll uh grab a couple of pieces of wood in the garage jump out of this car and, and head back inside must have enjoyed a uh, an hour or so of, of, of peace and quiet in the ute good on you mate look next week all being well we're going to be talking about what does it take to reform a police force what does it take to get a culture in a police force where you don't necessarily go for the gun you find a different way of doing it. Has it been done? Where's the model? How do we do it? Until then, well, I'll just say goodnight. Be kind to one another.